You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Amen. If you would open your Bibles up to the book of Psalms, um, if you uh, have a, a copy of Scripture in front of you, you can probably just open it up to the middle and you'll probably be in Psalms somewhere. Go to the very first Psalm and uh, we will be looking at these sweet, poetic six verses uh, from God's Word. Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's bow before the Lord as we start. God, we come before you. We thank you for these sweet, instructive words of Scripture to us. Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to what it is that you have for us today. And I pray that we would receive whatever word you have to speak to us today from your word, um, that, it, that we would receive it, that we would believe it, and that we would... Um, that it would change us. So Lord, we, we come to you knowing that you are, are eager to meet with us and we ask uh, that you would uh, open your word and your heart to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my message and the defining question really throughout the message today is, do you really want to be happy? Do you really want to be happy? The answer of that is easy, of course. Yes, you do. Every human being would answer yes to that question. No one really wants to be unhappy. We really all want to be happy. And it's actually enshrined in the American Declaration of Independence. Um, our own American Independ uh, Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. In, uh, in that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So our own uh, government, our own, or our own Declaration of Independence, believes that the pursuit of, of, of one's happiness is a gift from the Creator. And actually, it's designed to lead us to the Creator. If you do a Google search, which I did this week, on the phrase, how to be happy, seven billion results pop up in .68 seconds. So it's not an uncommon question. It's an often, uh, often sought-after answer there. One Huff, Huff Post, Huffington Post article from 2017 had the title, Do You Want to Be Happy? And here's a little bit of, what, of the advice that was given from that article. Do you want to be happy? That may seem like a silly question, but it's a question that I am asking, that I am constantly asking myself. How much longer am I willing to sacrifice my happiness and joy at my persistence of focusing on all the things that I seem not to like about my life or countlessly worry about things I cannot change? 
The truth is, seeking the spark outside of ourselves will only ever bring us back into where we started. Being loved and accepted is how we manage to go forward in life. If we do not receive this from an external source, our growth process is to learn to give it to ourselves. And so, and so this, is the, uh, this is what has been given as a solution for to be happy, is to look inward. Don't look outward for your happiness, look inward. And the more true to yourself you become and the more in sync with your fulfilling your own um, heart's desires is how you can be happy. Um, this is not good news. This is not good news. And, and the scriptures would actually lead us in a different direction, would say that no, our happiness is found outside of ourselves. Our happiness is found in someone else. Uh, we do live in a culture where it's go deeper within yourself and forget what's outside because you want to be your true self to be happy. The scriptures say something else. So what does the Bible say about happiness and the desire and pursuit of being happy? The Bible's largest book, the book of Psalms, which is where we're at today, actually the very first word of the Psalms is the Hebrew word for happy. It's translated, probably translated blessed in your Bible. So it starts chapter 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man. And you could just as easily tra um, uh, uh, translate that as happy. It's actually in the plural. It's the idea of all the blessings. Comprehensive blessing. There is total blessing, total happiness for the man and then describes what that person is like. So the Bible is very much concerned with how and what we pursue for our happiness. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 next week, which are connected, are, ma are a magnificent summary, really, of the whole book of Psalms. And I would actually argue that it's a good summary. Those two Psalms together are a good summary of actually the whole Bible, the message of the whole Bible. We know that in Scripture, Genesis 1 begins with a blessing. He blesses Adam and Eve after creating them. And he charges them to be happy in fulfilling the mandate of God in perfect fellowship with God. In Genesis 3, we see it all come crashing down when the serpent tempts humanity to think that there is greater happiness in disobeying God and there's greater happiness in seeking to be greater than God or looking inside yourself for happiness instead of to God. So that desire to be happy is actually God-given. God-given and meant to lead us to him. And what happens is that our life begins to fall apart. Happiness becomes more and more elusive when we seek it in other places or in ourselves. So Psalm 1 begins with the instinct and desire in our hearts to be happy. The desire to be happy comes from God and is meant to lead us to God. God is the greatest, happiest being to ever exist. I wonder if you view God that way. We tend to, I think, often think of God as this judge who's just angry, waiting to smite people. But the Bible actually gives us a picture of God being the greatest, happiest, most satisfied being in all the world. And when he gets angry, it's because someone's happiness is being robbed, someone's blessing, something, something is going wrong that doesn't lead to happiness in him. He made all humanity in his image to share supremely in his happiness. Psalms is all about happiness in God. We all experience the fact that happiness can be twisted in every single way, and the Psalms are honest about that. The Psalms are the one book that is primarily man speaking to God. So that's kind of interesting that as we read about 
the Bible being God's word to us, God in his kindness has made man's words to God inspired as words to us. So we have language in the Bible and that's why we lament. We lament when our happiness in God is thwarted, when we're not experiencing what we ought to be experiencing in the presence of God because of sin and brokenness, because of attack and, and, and evil. And we praise God when we are experiencing his happiness, his glory, we praise him. And we call, uh, the Psalms call judgment on those who seek happiness in the wrong places or seek to rob other people's happiness in God. So I would argue that Psalms has a lot to do with happiness and the Bible does. And God is not unconcerned with that question. So the question of this message will be, do you really want to be happy? Psalm 1 will help us in just six short verses to see where we can find the blessing, the happiness that God uh, offers to humanity. So I want to analyze this passage with you, and uh, basically there's, there's two parts to it. Um, the, the, the psalm describes two different kinds of people. Divides all of, all of humanity, falls into these two categories. So we're going to look at two identities, and then the two delights of those different people, what they delight in is different, Two metaphors and then two destinies of the people contrasted, the righteous and the wicked. So first of all, verse one, very first phrase, we have two kinds of people identified. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So blessing and wicked. So there are two kinds of people in the world. There's the happy righteous, the blessed righteous, and there's the wicked sinner scoffer, which is what the rest of the of verse one tells us is that there's the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer. Um, we actually see the name righteous further like in verse five and six of the psalm is where we get the actual titling of this. And I want you to think of these two individuals as having what is the defining quality of them? That's what we mean by identity. What's the defining quality of their life, particularly from God's perspective? The happy righteous and the wicked sinner, scoffer. Verse 1 says the wicked, uh, um, the happy righteous is blessed um, and the wicked, look at verse 1, uh, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. Then look at verse 4, it describes the wicked this way, the wicked are not so, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In verse 6, the way of the wicked will perish. So we clearly have the righteous and the wicked here. Now looking at verse 1, we see the word wicked and the idea there is the, the idea of a guilty criminal, someone who has violated, violated a law. They have, um, they have broken God's law. That's what it means to be wicked, the guilty criminal. The sinner uh, means that he is disobedient. He has, in his actions. So we have the idea of identity, guilty cr criminal. And then the word sinner, we see his actions. And then scoffer, the attitude. The attitude of someone who is wicked is that they scoff at God, scoff at his word, and seek happiness everywhere else. So there are only two kinds of people that have ever lived on the planet, the righteous and the wicked. And the question that this psalm is intended to do, to, to cause you to ask is, is to ask yourself, which one are you? So as we go through the psalm, I want you to take an honest look at yourself and go, which, which one better describes me? We'll come to that 
towards the end as we look at this. But let's look at verse, the second half of verse 1 and 2. And we see that these two identities, the righteous and the wicked, have two different delights. And I want you to think appetite here. I love a good bacon cheeseburger. There is something in my nature that just loves a good cheeseburger or a good prime rib. I was born a carnivore. I have no taste for Brussels sprouts or asparagus, no matter how much my wife tries to get me to. We have appetites. We have desires. There's delights according to our nature. Um, I am a terrible fisherman. My boys and I, we've tried fishing several times. They're back here. Yeah, and we, uh, we're terrible. We never catch anything. What I've found is, um, is that apparently a, a successful part of fishing is knowing the nature of fish and what they're attracted to, what they delight in. You're not just going to put a hook in the water and catch a fish. That's probably very unlikely. And we've tried everything. We've tried carrots. We've tried, um, we've tried apples. We've tried cheese. And apparently fish, the fish that are in that particular pond don't eat those things. So they don't have a taste or an appetite for those things because their nature, because of the way their nature is. The same is true with the righteous and the wicked. They have two different natures that leads them to delight in two different things. The righteous delights in, the, in God through his word. The righteous delights in God through his word. Look at verse two. His delight is in the law of God and on his law he meditates day and night. If you look at the end of verse one, you'll notice that he refuses to walk with the wicked, to stand in the way of the sinner and to sit in the seat of the scoffer. He has no appetite for evil. He has no interest in evil. He ref- that's delight that he refuses. He has no delight in that. But in verse two, he does have a voracious appetite for God. That's why he loves the word is because he loves God. It's not that he has made the word God. It's that the, wor- the God who speaks through his word is who he's delighting in. And he meditates day and night. He internalizes and savors constantly God through his word. So his righteous nature produces in him a delight in God through his word. His nature is such that sin is becoming more and more repulsive to him and God's word is becoming more and more delicious. I could eat a bacon cheeseburger probably any time of the day and enjoy it. And this person, this righteous person, delights in God all day and loves to feast on his word. Now notice what the wicked delights in self through sin. Go back to verse 1. Walks in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Talking about the wicked, uh, talking about the righteous there, what he doesn't do. But the, uh, I think the inference there is that the wicked does do those things. It's in contrast that the wicked does walk in the counsel of other like, like-minded wicked people, also stands in the way of sinners, and sits in the seat of scoffers. This is what the wicked one delights in, delights in self through sin. And notice the progression there from walking according to the counsel of the wicked to now slowing down and standing in the way of sinners and then finally becoming settled and seated in the seat of scoffers. So the idea is becoming more and more at home in an atmosphere that scoffs at God, that goes against God. The wicked becomes more and more at home, more and more comfortable in places of sin. Goes from walking to standing to sitting in the place that is against God. His nature is such that God's word is repulsive 
and sin is delicious. He feasts on it all day and has no taste for God's word at all. So the question then is, is what do you delight in? What do you delight in? What gets you out of bed? What animates your life's pursuits? What does that say about your nature? What you delight in, what your mind is consumed with, what you look forward to? Which one of these two identities do your nature and delight align with? From our natures, from our identities, flow our delights. And our, de our delights, as we'll see, determine our destiny. Delighting in God means that we will receive God. Delighting in sin means that we will receive wrath. And so now we have two metaphors in verses 3 and 4. Two identities, two delights, and two different metaphors. Look at verses 3 and 4. The righteous are like the watered tree. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So the righteous, think picture here, the righteous one's life before God is like a well-watered tree. We have uh, several trees on our property and there's only one that I, well, two, I guess, that haven't died and it's the two that are closest to the drainage ditch behind our house. And we have this big, glorious, gorgeous tree that just grows tremendously every year and the, re the reason is it's because it's down in the ditch and its roots are just always in the water. It's a full, beautiful tree. All the other trees seem to, that are up further into our yard, seem to struggle, seem to have a harder time making it through storms. And, uh, but this tree is just solid and healthy. And that's the picture of the, of the righteous, is that he is so well watered by the word of God that he weathers the storms. I love the word planted there. I was just meditating on that sense of planted. Planted is a passive word there. The tree didn't decide where to put itself. Someone designed the tree to be there. The tree didn't happen to be there. The idea here is intentionality. The tree was purposefully planted by streams of water in order that it might be fruitful, that it might flourish. And it also implies intentionality. The tree didn't put itself there. The tree was put wherever it was planted, but there was an intentionality that the tree was planted there. And the same is with the righteous. The righteous is not righteous by accident. And the righteous is not righteous because of anything they have done. We're going to get to that at the end of our message today. And so the idea here is that God plants the righteous in his word. The righteous doesn't become righteous because of what they've done, but because of where God has put them intentionally for their good. And his, the, wa the word is like the water giving life to this tree, and the word is water giving life to the righteous. If you are to be righteous, it's not going to come naturally, but come supernaturally. You must be, apart from any work of your own, intentionally made righteous by God. We don't become righteous in our own efforts. God declares us righteous in Christ, plants us in the streams of water, and we become fruitful. We become like the well-watered tree because we've been declared righteous. And like I said already, the streams of water are connected to the delighting in the word day and night. The tree loves water, enjoys it constantly, benefits from it co constantly. The righteous, likewise, delights in God and is constantly feasting on the word, flourishing in the word. Notice that it says here that it yields its fruit in season, which means that this is a fruitful tree. It multiplies, right? 
Fruit is how the tree spreads its seeds. So it multiplies, it produces other flourishing trees. But it's also the idea of provision, that you can go to this tree and this tree has something to offer you, something good to offer you, something to nourish you. And that's what the righteous is like. The righteous is multiplying other righteous people. And the righteous is also the kind of person that people are drawn to because they get spiritual, emotional, relational nourishment. And so this is a fruitful tree whose leaf does not wither. This is the idea of being able to last through drought. This is the idea that this, this tree, this person can weather life's storms. It's strong. The roots are deep. It's healthy. And just like the trees in my yard, some of the trees make it, some don't, depending on how strong their roots are. And the same with this person. The righteous is a fruitful, resilient, and then lastly, a prosperous person. Now, this is not necessarily like health and wealth, name it, claim it kind of prosperity. This is a spiritual prosperity. This is happiness in God that results in more people being happy in God. That's a biblical view of prosperity, is growing into Christ-likeness, not the prosperity gospel. The other night, Bree and I watched a, a Netflix uh, documentary that just came out called American Gospel. I would highly commend it, and it talks about this kind of thing, the difference between prosperity theology, name it, claim it, um, theology, and the true gospel, and why the true gospel is so much better. And that that the word doesn't guarantee that we won't have hardships and it doesn't guarantee that we won't have unhappy days, but it does mean that there is a sweetness to knowing God through the gospel, through the true gospel, that allows one to weather any storm and allows there to be a spiritual prosperity in God regardless of what your physical situation is. I would highly commend it to you. It's a long one. It's a bit technical in places, but man, so good. American Gospel on Netflix would be well worth your time. So that's the righteous. That's metaphor number one. The righteous are like a well-watered tree. But look at the wicked in verse four. The wicked are like the worthless chaff. The wicked are not so, verse four, but are like chaff that the wind blows away. And that's really all the psalm has to say about that metaphor. So if the righteous are like a tree that's stable and healthy and strong, the chaff are dead. They are rootless, not grounded in anything but themselves. They're weightless. They're so easy to move and sway and brush away, eliminate. And they're useless. There's no increasing in happiness in God. There's no increasingness in happiness in others' happiness. So the wicked are the kind of, are the kind of people that so turn in on themselves that they provide really, they have no rootedness. They, have, they, they are weightless. There's no substance to them. And they and ultimately are useless in terms of spiritual benefit to others. It's a sobering thing to think about. The worthless chaff versus the well-watered tree. So let's think about this just for a moment and ask ourselves, do our emotional, spiritual, relational lives give evidence of health, strength, stability, and fruitfulness? Or do we seem to be most of the time rootless, weightless, useless, spiritually, emotionally, or relationally? And we all have good and bad days. Even Jesus had days where he was tired or he was angry or he was frustrated. So I'm not saying that this is like perfect all the time. But the overall trajectory of your life is there, is there a rootedness in God being developed in you? Or are you kind of blown around by whatever circumstances? And that's the difference between these two, which then ultimately leads in verses five and six, two different destinies or companies. 
I'm going to put these two points together. Two destinies or companies, meaning what is the final eternal state of each of these two kinds of people and who are they with is also indicated here. Who are they with? So let's read verses five and six together. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You see the company there. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So these two identities with two different delights represented by two different metaphors have two different destinies in front of them. An eternal company of one or the other. The first is fellowship with God and the godly. Do you see that? Verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And then in verse 5, we talk about the sinner not being in the congregation of the righteous, which means that the righteous is in the congregation of the righteous. So there is going to be an ingathering of God's people. And all of our relationships will be together. There will be fellowship with God and, and with the godly, the righteous, those whom God has made righteous. So that's what's awaiting the person identified as righteous is they will have eternal fellowship with God, knowing God and being known by God. And they will be with the godly. They will be with others who delight in God. So it's going to be full and perfected companionship is awaiting the righteous with God and with others. All of the things that, that Justin prayed for earlier today where we don't experience this kind of companionship. We don't experience this kind of 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 unity and love with God and our neighbor and we long for it and for the righteous, they're going to get it. They're going to experience it for eternity. But for the wicked, there is banishment from God and happiness. There's eternal corruption and forever isolation. Look at how sobering this is in verse five. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. The righteous will stand not because of their own works, but because of what Christ has given them, the righteousness Christ has given them. But the wicked will have to stand there on their own merits and they will not stand in the judgment. They will fall. Verse five, there will be separation from all those who delight in God. I think there's some people that go, I would rather be in hell with my friends than heaven, you know. But the idea is, is, is hell is total isolation. Uh, it's, it's total isolation from God, but it's total isolation from others as far as I can understand. So the idea that that hell is like some sort of kind of big party is, uh, is so far from the New Testament. It's separation from everything. Everything from every separation from God, separ sep uh, separation from any good that comes from God, separation from all others and the good things that bring, that come with companionship. So in essence, God gives the wicked what they want, which is life apart from him. But God and happiness, eternal happiness, are connected. So for someone to go and, and reject spending eternity with God are inevitably separating themselves from the source of happiness and goodness and righteousness. God will give them what they desire. God will give them what they delight in. So which destiny or company is before you? In light of your identity and delights, which way does the Bible say you're headed? Which road are you on? Which way, the way known by God or the way that leads to corruption and isolation. So the psalm lays before us two stark pictures. One is gloriously beautiful and one is horrendously sobering and frankly scary and we're meant to 
to, like a mirror, the law of God is to show us who we are. It's, it's not a ladder to get to God. We don't use this psalm and then all of a sudden kind of, I'm going to try to make this happen. I'm going to make myself righteous. I'm going to say no to this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to kind of do it in my own strength. Um, you won't do it. It won't happen. Psalm 32 tells us this. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 14. It says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So if we're honestly holding ourselves up to Psalm chapter 1, none of us is the righteous one. None of us delights in God and his word as we ought in and of ourselves. All of us have far too much of the whisperings of the wicked walking in the way, standing in the way of sinners and scoffing, scoffing at God. So Psalm 1 is incredibly sobering because Psalm 14 tells us that there's none who, 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 who measure up, who make, make it in that category. So how do we leave wickedness and gain righteousness? How do we leave unhappiness and gain ha- happiness? Psalm 32 tells us something beautiful. It says, blessed, we're happy again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, or happy, again, is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Down at the end of, of Psalm 32, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, happy, be happy in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So the psalm, Psalm 14 and Psalm 32, put together with Psalm chapter 1, tell us that no one's righteous, no one's in that first category. But we're all in the second category. We're all marked by wickedness. We're all, um, we're all delighting in ourselves and in sin. We're all like the, the chaff that gets blown around and we're all destined for separation from God. But... There is a way to happiness. There is a way to God. And it's through forgiveness. Forgiveness of our sins and receiving the righteousness that God gives to those who trust in him. Which is exactly what the gospel is. Is that happiness is available to the wicked if they'll repent of their sin and come to Jesus. We've been in the gospel of John the last few months and listen to what John 7 says. Jesus says this, he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, spiritual life. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So for the one that will recognize their wickedness and turn from their sin and trust in Jesus and what he's done, they can be made righteous from the inside. The tree planted by streams of water, Jesus says, I will make your heart that place of living water by my spirit. I will make you righteous and then your delights will change and then the metaphor will change and your destiny and your company will change. We don't change those things in the hope of receiving the verdict of righteous. God renders the verdict the moment we believe and then those other things begin to come. 
John says this in John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the, bran- in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the blessed man in Psalm chapter one, only Jesus is the one who fulfilled all that. Only he truly avoided sin. Only he truly delighted in God and fulfilled his word. Only Jesus is the ultimate tree. And it is by being grafted into him by faith that we share in the life of that well-watered tree. Jesus is the one who is the Psalm 1 man and we can be grafted in like branches with him. The reason this is the case is that God sent Jesus to be that tree, to be that righteous one because none of us were righteous. He lived a perfect life. He died on the death uh, on the cross, a death for our sins so that we could be forgiven and declared righteous and he rose again from the dead proving that he is the conqueror of sin, death, and hell and that he is able to save all who will trust in him. And he ascended to heaven. He he intercedes now. He is like that tree in that he is interceding and preserving the spiritual life of all who trust in him now. And so that's where you need to be today is to repent of your sin, acknowledge that you're in the wicked category, but you long to be happy in God and long to be made righteous, trust in Jesus Christ, what he's done for you, and receive the label, the identity of righteousness. And then love God through his word. Love being in the congregation of the righteous. And you will begin to flourish, and you'll see your happiness in God increase. Your life may or may not get better externally, but internally you'll have a life that is flourishing, and God will begin to make you new, and he will make you rooted and substantive and fruitful. Nobody wants to be rootless. Nobody wants to be weightless. Nobody wants to be useless. And because of Christ, we don't have to be. If we really want to help others, we need to show them the reality of sin and point them to the one who can make them righteous. God is the happiest being in all the world. To be rightly reconciled to him is to possess the actual source of happiness. To scoff at him and his word is to cut ourselves off eternally from happiness. So as you look at God's word, look at Psalm 1 like a mirror and then go before God. Go before God and ask him to make you the righteous, to change your delights, to make you flourish and to bring you into his fellowship forever. There is a great Christian from the 1800s who lived in England. He ran an orphanage. His name was George Mueller. Credible Uh, walk with God that he had and listen to this so if you're a Christian listen to this here's what George Mueller discovered in his own walk with God he said I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day so at the beginning of the day this is the highest priority was not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord but how I might get my soul in a happy state in God and how my inner man may be nourished. I saw that the most important thing to do was to give myself to the reading of the word and to meditation on it. That's the Christian's first priority at the beginning of every day is to get your soul happy in God through his word. It's the most important priority. If you're not a Christian today, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've not received the righteous label, 
There's words from an old theologian named John Owen. I've kind of smoothed it out. He wrote uh, in a very difficult way to understand, but listen to this. I hope that you'll take this to heart and consider this. Listen to what he says. He says, consider the infinite condescension and love of Christ. In his invitations and calls of you to come unto him for life, deliverance, mercy, grace, peace, and eternal salvation. This is the word he speaks to you now. Why will you die? Why will you perish? Why will you not have compassion for your own soul? Can your heart endure or your hands be strong in the day of wrath that is approaching? Jesus says this directly to you. Look unto me and be saved. Come to me and I will ease all of your sins, your sorrows, fears, burdens, and I will give rest to your soul. Come, I am calling to you. Lay aside all your procrastinating, all your delaying. Put me off no more. Eternity lays at the door. Do not so hate me that you would rather perish in hell than accept deliverance from me. Jesus has appointed this message for you today. This gospel has been brought to you today directly from Jesus to deal with you and to plead with you to receive Jesus Christ, to receive righteousness, happiness in him, to be that well-watered tree and to spend eternity knowing God and in the fellowship of, of his people. Let's go before the Lord right now and just take a moment to do business with him. If you're a Christian, renew in your heart your commitment to him through his word. Ask him to stir up your delights, to remind you of the righteous label that he has given you and to cause you to enjoy him more. And if you're not a Christian, acknowledge your wicked state before him and come to Jesus Christ. Receive the new label and begin to have him transform you from now into eternity. Let's take a moment right now to do business with God. Oh God, there are only two kinds of people in the world, your word says. Those who are identified by you as righteous and those who are identified by you as wicked. Lord, no other, nabel, no other label matters. No matter what other people think or what we think of ourselves, your opinion of us is all that matters. And Lord, we come before you and I, I know that in and of myself, I am the wicked. But I thank you, Lord, that you've sent that warning to cause me to look to Jesus, that there is one who has been righteous in my place, who has received the judgment I deserved and now is willingly ready to not just take my sin, but to make me righteous. And Lord, I pray there would be some today that this would just click in their heart and in their mind and then they would receive the label of righteous and they would begin to have their delights changed. That they would begin to see spiritual flourishing and happiness develop in you. And that they would stand in the judgment, be counted among the righteous, and be known by you forever. Lord, I pray that you would be transferring people from the category of the wicked to the category of the righteous right now. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.
Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart, you're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh, God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep. Your grace is more Where grace is found Is where you are And where you are Lord, I am free Holiness is Christ in me And where you are Lord, I am free Holiness is Christ in me Lord I need you oh I need you every hour I need you my one defense my righteousness oh God how I need you So teach my song to rise to you When temptation comes my way And when I cannot stand or fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay And when I cannot stand or fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay. You are. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you, my one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need
It's on. It's green. Okay. All right. Thank you for bringing the word. And uh, we do have some questions here. Um, let me do this. I guess one just um, a generic question would be um, why the Psalms in connection with John this summer kind of what led you to decide to do that and what are we hoping to get out of it? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, a big part of it is that at South Canyon, which is the church that planted us, um, and I served as a pastor there as well, uh, for the last four years we'd done Psalms in the summertime. And what's nice about the Psalms is there's a lot of them. So you can just, and the fact that they stand alone, they are connected, you can kind of weave some together, but you can also, they also stand alone. So in the summer when people are in and out, it's the kind of series that's nice. So that's one thing I wanted to continue just generally. And then uh, I think actually, um, you know, so, so I, was, I, I was leaning towards wanting to do the Psalms anyway, but I think it was actually a meeting with you, whereas we were trying to figure out which Psalms to do. You, uh, you brought up, well, let's do ones that are maybe connected in some way theologically or maybe directly referred to in the Gospel of John. And I looked it up, and I think there's 14 of them. And I think there's 15 Sundays in the summer okay. for us in the series. So I was like, well, there we go. That way we're able to keep John kind of in the back of our minds because we're going back there in the fall. But uh, hopefully seeing the connectedness of all of Scripture. Okay. Um, and then also... Um, it's nice to take a little break from one genre and go into the other. Um, you probably noticed we're actually on Sunday mornings through the summer going to read through what we've already preached through in John um, as part of the scripture readings. You read John 1 this yep. morning. We're going to continue that so that we're able to kind of keep John and Psalms connected, and that'll be the year 2020 is going to be very John-focused. Okay. So anyway, that was a long answer to your question. No, 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 that's good. Um, let's see here. Um, I guess one question that does uh, stand out is so much in the Psalms seems to hinge on our love of God's word. And I'm certain that probably everybody who uh, heard the sermon could think of ways that they might actually love God's word more. So how do we, how do we cultivate that in our day-to-day -day lives? You know, I, I know I could be reading God's word more, thinking about it more. I mean, what does that look like to cultivate an actual desire for God's word? Yeah, that's a good question because uh, even as a pastor who's someone who devotes a lot of time to that, I still struggle almost daily with that. So I think that's part of the reality of, of still being, while being saved and God's cultivating that desire, we're still in our sinful flesh and we tend to resist the things God wants us to do. I think that... Uh, asking God for the desire, so pray about it. God, I want to want your word more. I want to enjoy it more. And then I think there's something about the more you're in it, the more you learn to love it too. So I do think that's where the spiritual disciplines of prayer and, and Bible reading, and that's where a Bible reading plan can be helpful, mm -hmm. is to, to kind of keep you on track and to help provide some motivation um, and a structure that allows you to fight the, the fleshly desires to kind of resist God's word. So there's an old phrase that says sin will either keep you from God's word or God's word will keep you from sin. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, hopefully God is cultivating that desire in our hearts that, um, that we're loving it more and more uh, as time goes by. And I think we should probably evaluate ourselves on a longer time frame uh -huh. instead of just this last week or yesterday wasn't a great day, but over the course of the last five years or 10 years, I've been walking with the Lord 
am I knowing his word more than I did mm-hmm. a year ago or 10 years ago? Yeah. Um, because it's, it's bumpy. It's yeah. like, it's like the stock market. If you yeah. <laughs> look at it at any given moment, you'll go crazy. Yeah. But if you look at the general trajectory of, okay, God is slowly creating more and more of a hunger for him and his word. So yeah. that'd be a few things. Okay. Yeah. I found that in the past praying, like, Lord, give me that desire has been helpful sometimes. Yeah. And, um, memorizing is sometimes pretty boring initially as well but i found like it allows me to later recall passages of scripture and be like oh that yeah and then i can think about it when i don't have it sitting there in front of me is another thing yeah that's good and i think that's key in the passage i didn't draw that out but to meditate on a day and night means that it's it's in here and it's in here Mm -hmm. and so i didn't talk about that very much i don't um, I wish I was better and more disciplined when it came to memorizing. But yeah. I think that's definitely in the passage that this is a person who so internalized it that it's, it's kind of, yeah. you know, the idea of meditating there is like a cow chewing its cud, just yeah. digesting and, you know, uh, over and over again, yeah, yeah. the words. So, yeah. yeah, that's good. Um, you may have mentioned that Jesus had bad days. I don't mean sin, okay. but I was trying to make sure that we weren't thinking of happiness just in terms of only emotional. Okay. I, feel, I, f- I feel good about today. Yeah. I do think that there were days where, where Jesus did grieve. There were days, like we even saw in John, that he wept, he felt angry, um, he was frustrated. So I don't mean sin, but I do mean that like, we tend to think of happy meaning that I'm cheery all the time. Okay. But, but I wanted to kind of distinguish there that Jesus was the perfectly happy in the deepest most profound ways but yet there was also emotional ups and downs yeah, yeah. so that's okay that's what i was trying to okay kind of specify there i, yeah. I figured that and i just thought i would throw yeah that's good up. yeah Clearly. you don't always you don't always know <laughs> how precisely you're saying things in a sermon so that's yeah. good um so uh there was a question on text there was yep it's a good one. I might need your help on it. Okay. So, um, let me pull it up. Okay. Righteousness versus r- wickedness seems very connected to lifestyle and actions in the Psalms, not merely a verdict of righteousness by God. And yet the Psalms, the equivalent of perfection, yet in the Psalms, the equivalent of perfection or is there something else that distinguishes it from wickedness? Mm. It kind of c- came in in two texts, so it's hard to read. But So what dis- uh, is there something else that distinguishes it from wickedness? Hmm. You asked that. Do you want to yeah. help uh, me with that? Should I repeat the? Yeah, so the, the question is, in the, throughout the Psalms, you'll read it. Sometimes the psalmist will make claims to being righteous, and it seems to be based on, in Psalm 1, on what you do, on your actions, rather than God saying, be, you know, I declare you righteous, you know, uh, I, I give you 
this righteous um, verdict. Uh, so what, what are we to make? Is, is the claim to righteousness in the Psalms somewhere below that kind of perfection that God requires uh, to pass the judgment? Or how do we make sense of these, these claims to seeming righteousness? Or even when we're confessing sin sometimes in the Psalms, they'll say then they're righteous. So how do we make sense of? Yeah, I think just purely looking at the Psalm, uh, you would definitely go, it's, it's kind of a works-based thing. Mm -hmm. um, I was arguing that I think actually the better way to understand the psalm is to see it as identity-based behavior and delights, okay. right? So not a, um, not a stacking up of good deeds to then earn the title of righteous, which I think, you know, um, kind of can be seen in the psalms there a little bit. Um, but I, th I was trying to interpret it more canonically across the scriptures that you know, even back in Genesis 12, um, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Mm -hmm. And then the things he does, um, you know, good are, are the result of him, I think, being declared righteous, if that yeah. makes sense. So he was declared righteous before really doing <laughs> anything good and still does good and bad things. Yeah. So um, and then I think at the, in the New Testament, it becomes very clear that uh, righteousness is gifted by God through faith. And then, and then that results in good works. That every, every one of Paul's epistles is laid out that way. There's the indicatives of what God yeah. has made you if you trust in Christ and now how you live. So I was with that framework in the background then seeing Psalm 1 through that lens. Um, I don't know if that helps or not, but um, I, yeah, I think it's, it's probably more complicated than that. Yeah. But in one sermon and wanting to make yeah. sure that Christ is at the center of this I do think that that was, that yeah. was kind of how I was yeah. leading us through Psalms so that we didn't end up with a works righteousness. Yeah. Um, I think that it is probably one of the more tricky issues is trying to figure out how to make sense of some of these Psalms in light of the fact that from the New when Christ comes, we know that we have nothing to stand before God and we need everything that is Christ's for us to be able to stand in the final judgment. But then you read these psalms and you're like, wow, it sounds like he's pretty confident <laughs> that he's, he's doing well. Um, and, and I think it is a, a very difficult issue when you start going out into the reading Christian commentary all, all over the place from experts to just in your everyday congregation having clarity on, yeah, what is the relationship of these psalms to Jesus? And I think you mentioned it actually before the sermon that John does paint this black and white. There are, you know, there's the evil and there's good. You know, John is, the there's light and there's darkness. And yet it all is still connected with Jesus, even in John's gospel. So I think that John takes the same pro approach as the Psalms, even in this two categories, but always ties it to Jesus. And, you know, in the New Testament, it says you will know them by their fruit. So from a human perspective, yeah. We can only we can only see the way a person conducts themselves in light of their confession. So, um, so yeah, it's 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 maybe in some ways a God's perspective versus ours perspective. In that, the only way we can know if someone is really walking with God is that it shows up. Yeah. God Himself is the one who, who. Uh, so I, I wanted to be careful as we discuss the righteous that there is no righteousness apart from Christ 
in the sense of saving righteousness. Yeah. I think that's the yeah. theme of the. So you obviously have to read Psalm 1 as Christian scripture to get that because in those six verses you don't have all of that. Yeah. But yeah. I do think that there are lines being drawn and I do think that even Jesus in the Beatitudes might be yeah. blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the, you know, yeah. um, that there is some connection to the blessings in yeah. Psalms in terms of this is the kind of person yeah. that is gains acceptance in God's sight. Yeah. And I think maybe one other thought is in Psalm 1, it says the blessed person delights in God's word. And I think that often people think of God's word as sort of like, like you said, kind of God kills happiness. He's not the most happy being. And I think we often think of God's law in that same way. But here the psalm is saying, actually, if you were to obey God's law, if you could do it completely, your life would be perfect. So God's law is not actually against the go- a good life. Um, and that's why Christ did it, and then we benefit from, in some way, we benefit from his keeping that law. So the law is not opposed to happiness. It's probably just another key thing in the psalm, too. And I tried to, at the beginning, too, in Genesis 3, that was the lie that we've all been tempted to believe, Yeah, is that, you know, she said that, it says that Eve saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and and good in, in certain ways, and she was convinced that, that God was holding out on her, yeah. that God was withholding something that she could have, should have had, yeah. um, and that to go against God was the way to be happy. Yeah. So we still have inherited that same yeah. sort of suspicion of God yeah. from our first parents. Yeah, so. that's good. There are, I don't see any more questions. Anyone out here? There's a question on YouTube. Oh, yep, there. Uh, is it cons- is it consistent with Scripture to still identify yourself as wicked if you are a believer? That's a similar, that's a, t- that's a good one. Um, that's a good question. I, w- I would need to know, I think, a little more of what you're, how you're receiving that, or how you're applying that. Like, if something you did was wicked and you're owning up to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would disagree if it's one of those that you all of a sudden think that you've lost your salvation or that all of a sudden you have overwhelmed the cross of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. you know, that, that is, you know, so, um, so I would need to know kind of in what sense one is applying that term. But I think for the one who's received the righteousness of Christ, um, they do feel a genuine holiness they do feel but they also feel the sense that there is still sin in my life and so oh what's the latin phrase maybe you can help us simultaneously sinner and saint yeah yeah oh yeah. the reformation I, yeah i know it's in latin but I there's a famous yeah. phrase yeah. that it was like <laughs> that's that's the reality is that in this state before christ returns or we die and are glorified um we are simultaneously sinner and saint uh-huh. and so i think probably someone can if that's what they mean um, but if they mean that they have in some sense overwhelmed the cross yeah. or, or in, you know, I don't know if that is making sense, but yeah, yeah. I, I think if you look at some of the new Testament letters, you find that, uh, Paul will refor- refer to the church, uh, you know, your identity is now as a saint, you know, you're a holy one, but it doesn't mean that he won't then call them to call them to repentance, call them to change. Simultaneously, you have James, for example, that calls them, <laughs> you know, you wicked, adulterous folks, you know, because, you know, so I think that depends sometimes uh, 
in certain situations, yeah, you probably Christians sometimes need to be called out for r- wicked and wrong actions. Um, and then there is those moments where actually you're a child of God, you know? Um, so the Bible That's good. does go That's back and forth, I think, in some yep. ways. And I think, yeah, the, the key... The key there is to lean in on what Christ has accomplished for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that in the end, that's, that's the identity you want to lean into. Yeah. Call wickedness wickedness. Yeah. And even at times say, I did that from a, from a heart disposition of, of sin yeah, and yeah. wicked. That was wicked. Yeah. So I think we can be honest about that. But I think it's important that if you're repenting and believing in the gospel, to trust that that's your fundamental standing before God. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then repent and yeah. And Christ is sufficient to forgive. So yeah, that's good. I, that's it for me. Okay. So I don't want to. All right. Well, we have an interview. Thank you, Justin, for peppering me with questions. Yeah. Uh, easier ones next time, please. It's <laughs> good. All right. So this might. Um, this is my wife. This is Bree, and uh, it's Bree's turn to share her testimony. And so I didn't bring my questions up here, but I've asked the same ones each time. So um, three things. Um, One is tell us about how you grew up and how you came to faith in Christ. So that's number one. Okay, well, I grew up in a Christian home. So my parents were believers and um, took me to church from before I was born. Um, I have four siblings. I was the fourth out of five. Um, and so I guess I knew about Jesus. I knew he died on the cross for my sins, um, you know, as long as I can remember. Uh, and I believe that I actually did believe that when I was really young, probably, I don't even really remember exactly when that would have been. Um, and just kind of looking back at my life, I think that I really was saved, um, very young, just, just thinking back on, feeling conviction about sin and different things. Um, But I will say that my faith story is one of being a recovering Pharisee, I guess you could say, Um, because I just was naturally kind of a good kid who didn't read good kid. And so I didn't, um, I just didn't see why people would struggle with sin so much. And I didn't understand why people couldn't um, just be good, I guess. And, um, and I guess I didn't really realize how much I desperately needed Christ to be good and that it was actually grace, his grace giving me that disposition. Um, cause it wasn't anything I had done to, to earn that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I guess that my story is just over the years, even as an adult, even really realizing that, um, everything I have is a gift from God. It's, it was grace all along. And, um, you know, it's not just grace redeeming my bad choices, but it was grace that enabled me to make good choices. Um, so that's kind of my, my testimony, I guess. Tell, tell us about your family, how you met your husband, your kids. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so I met my husband, Josh, right there, um, when we were seniors in high school at a scholarship competition for the college that we were both hoping to attend. And I won the full ride scholarship and he got a second tier scholarship. So, um, his joke is that, so I married her to get the money as well. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, we started dating our sophomore year of college and got married shortly after. Um, we lived in 
Bellevue, Nebraska, after we were married and served at a church there. Josh served, served um, as a youth pastor there. And then we came here to, uh, um, where do we live? Rapid City. <laughs> in 2013 and we have three kids i'm supposed to tell you that they are great kids that was my instruction uh, micah is 11 eli is 10 and lydia is seven all right yep they're back there good um and what how do you spend your time what do you do now how do you serve christ what are the ways that that god is using you in ministry and i Mostly stay home, but I work part-time at Shields. Um, I'm a co-manager of the women's athletic department there, so um, I'm really good at folding clothes. Um, I, I guess my ministry is just um, partly being a pastor's wife, which isn't really a defined role, but it's really largely just supporting the pastor, I would say. Um, and uh, so I kind of do a little of everything when it comes to ministry like what what the church needs um i at redeeming grace um my main thing has been to uh, help coordinate the children's ministry uh so i've been putting together the children's church lessons that we were using before um kind of the lockdown and um and just meeting always trying to disciple people especially women um meeting with them when i can one-on-one and uh and that sort of thing so you're off the hot seat. Good job. Thanks for sharing today. Well, we hope that you've been blessed by this message. And if there is some spiritual decision or question that you have, I would love to know that. Or just any Christian that you know, um, feel free to talk to them. Let them know uh, that you've put your faith and trust in Christ or that you have questions or are wrestling with something. Uh, that's what the body of Christ is for, is to minister Christ's words to one another and we all are capable of helping one another grow. So I encourage you that if if something really stirred in your heart from this service, let someone know who can uh, help encourage that in you. Um, our benediction today comes from Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this is what Paul writes. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God bless you this week. Let us know if there's any way that we can, uh, can encourage you or pray for you, and we hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.